thou shalt not commit adultery. Let's bow our heads. Father, you know how much I need you this morning. I need you to anoint my lips, to open my mind, to give me the words to say. Help me not to say anything that shouldn't be said. Help me to not leave anything unsaid that should be spoken. But help my words to be true, to be faithful to your word. And I pray that your word would be quick and powerful, that it would pierce to the the core of our being, and that it would speak truth to us, and it would bring healing to us, Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So this, this topic uh, in the Ten Commandments of adultery, obviously we talked about last week how every single one of the Ten Commandments stand in categories of sin. So they stand in for an entire category. Like last week when we spoke about you shall not kill, it's the whole category of honoring life and what that means um, for us. And, and when we come to this This commandment, you shall not commit adultery, it stands in for the whole category of sexual sins and uh, about God's opinion about sexuality and his his purpose for it and what he desires for it. Throughout history, um, the church has had uh, different, has, has erred on two different sides with this issue throughout history. So, if you read some of the early church fathers, they were really, really under uncomfortable with this topic and with marriage in general. Um, so there were, there were some that even taught that intimacy uh, is always a sin, even in marriage. It's just, it's sinful and it's wicked. Uh, there were some that were very uncomfortable with marriage. And if you want to know why or where that led to, uh, that's the reason why today the Roman Catholic Church does not allow their priests to marry. The idea was if you really, truly want to be holy, you can't be married. Um, What's a weakness today, the, the present weakness in our, um, in our world, you know that really isn't a weakness most churches have. That the struggle is we have a, a temptation to completely ignore the boundaries that God's word has placed on intimacy and on relationships. And that's why we turn back to God's word. This, this week, actually it was a week ago today, I believe, on Sunday. Uh, friends of mine, a family that I knew, the Barretts, uh, we're driving to an afternoon service on a Sunday, and he fell asleep at the wheel, or the Barrett. And when he woke up, he was starting to go off the road, and so you know what he did. He grabbed the wheel and pulled it back up on the road, and it overcorrected. There was oncoming traffic, and so he swerved back again. Isn't that what you do? You swerve on. If you're, if you're nervous and you've just woke up and you were asleep and you're addled, he swerves into, and then he back and forth like three or four times until the car flipped and, and went down into the, the ditch. Um, him and his wife are fine now, but they were a little bruised and cut up. And what, what caused that? Well, it was a lack of balance, right? It was, it was that uh, overcorrection back and forth. Um, and uh, what, what keeps you from having that happen when you're driving? Staying awake and keeping your headlights on if it's at night so you can see where you're headed. What, what helps that not to happen in our lives? Well, it's, it's staying in this right here. This, this word, this book, and what it teaches us about ourselves and about relationships is what helps us to stay in balance. And so I'm going to try, when I, when I preach to you this morning, to give you the whole counsel of God fairly 
and freely and uh, without fear. That's what I'm going to do my best to do. And I want you just to submit to God's word, just to hear what God's word has to say to you. If there's, there's, it's a big enough topic that I would not be surprised if when I finish, there'll be some of you that have more questions for me, and that's okay. I want you to ask them. I want, I want to have a, an atmosphere here in this church where afterwards you're welcome to come to me and say, Brother Martin, you said something up there and I didn't understand that or I didn't agree with it or I didn't think you applied the Bible right or whatever. You're welcome to say that and, and you may be right. When you come to me, I may realize that I was mistaken. Either I misspoke or I misunderstood and uh, I might have something to learn when this is done. But I want us, as we, as we come together, we're submitting to God's word. We want to hear what he has to say to us. So I've told you there were two errors that the church has fallen into. On the one side, completely ignoring marriage and family, feeling like it's kind of not really necessary and pushing it to one side. And, and uh, in fact, that's part of what the Reformation recaptured was the idea that marriage and family are good. They're good things. But they're not ultimate things. And um, the, the scriptures celebrate uh, sexuality and intimacy and marriage and family to a point that actually could make us uncomfortable. So I'm going to read some verses, but some verses I actually won't read this morning because I think you can only handle so much of God's word this morning. But there are a few verses that might, um, might really speak to us in this moment because sometimes you read them and you say, wow, I need to ask my pastor, what is that doing in the Bible? Because the Bible's very comfortable with intimacy and with marriage and with love and family. Uh, it's not something God's embarrassed about. It's not something that he left out like... He didn't want it to be in there, you know. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Very plain words from God's word. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Does that sound like a God who's not comfortable with marriage and love and intimacy and family? No, we're kind of like, Brother Martin, is that in the Bible? It is that and many other verses. And right in the very beginning of the story of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, God describes making man, forming him, and shaping him. And for the very first time, God says, it's actually not good. Something is not good. God has said, he makes the sun and the moon and the stars, and it's very good. It's good. He, he makes the land and the sea, it's good. He makes the animals, it's good. And then he makes man, and he says, this is not good for man to be alone. And uh, he brings all the animals before man, and man names them all, but he says, none of these are a, a good counterpart to me. And so God puts man to sleep, removes his ribs, shapes a, shapes a counterpart to man. And he says, this is very good. Now, I don't believe, I, I've, I've just have been reading about this this week, and this is not specifically about the goodness of marriage. And that's good news for some of you. Because some of you are saying, well, I'm, I'm not married, or there's complications in my marriage or different things. This is about the goodness of companionship and relationships. This is about the fact that God doesn't intend us to be lonely. And Psalms tells us that, uh, that God puts the solitary in families. One of the most beautiful things I believe about the church is those of you that are either single, you've never had a spouse, you don't have a spouse, or those of you that in some ways are functionally single. The church becomes that family for us. And uh, I, I, I want us to even do a better job about that. That God has intended man to be have companionship, 
for us to have friendships and fellowships and families. But there is an aspect of this, of this scripture in Genesis chapter 2 that's about that special companionship and fellowship between a man and his wife. And when the, um, when the woman shows up and God presents her to man, this is what Adam says. He says, this is what I was looking for. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In chapter 2 and verse 23, she shall be called woman because she was taken from man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. They were both naked and they were unashamed. Do you see that? This is what the Bible presents. If, if people, our culture struggles with saying, well, the Bible's an anti-intimacy, anti-sex book. It's not at all. That's not true. Maybe they've never read their Bible if they think that. Um, because scripture's clear from Adam's cry of delight in Genesis 2 to Proverbs admonitions to young husbands to delight in their wives to Song of Songs reveling in the erotic love of a, of a husband and wife. Paul's command for intimacy in marriage. Scripture celebrates intimacy within marriage. But what has happened? What, what does the scripture teach us about intimacy and sex? What does the Bible have to say to us? That culminates finally in Genesis chapter 20 that we read this morning, Genesis 20 and verse 14, God's command against adultery. What the Bible tells us is that the good desires that God has placed in our heart, the hungers and those desires, sin has twisted them and it started from the very beginning. So in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve sees the fruit and she takes the fruit, her desires, she allows her desires to lead her to things that God has said no to. And that's the story of mankind. And what immediately happens is that, that sin is brought into the picture and with sin comes shame. So what before had been perfect and innocent with no possibility of, of any need to, sh- to feel shame or to cover or to hide or to, uh, to protect, now there's this sudden need to, to cover things. And we're, we're ner- nervous and embarrassed and shy. And that is actually a gift. It's, it's the grace of shame. God has given that to us. And I'm going I'm to talk about that just a little bit more in a few minutes. But I want you to see two things that are happening here that flow out of the sinful act of Eve that that sin affected all of us. And this is what happens. Is that instead of intimacy be see, being seen as the gift of God, instead it becomes a thing that we worship in and of itself, for itself. It becomes an object of our worship. I say, I want, I need, I must have this thing. This thing will bring me fulfillment. Um, And we see intimacy, relationships, and marriage, specifically the marriage relationship. We see that, or not even the marriage relationship, but, but sexual intimacy as the key to happiness and fulfillment in our life. And once we decide that, a lot of errors and brokenness flow out of that. I shouldn't have to tell you this morning up here that that is not the key to happiness and fulfillment in life. And the, the, the thing that scripture points us back to, one of the reasons, the beautiful reasons why we know that intimacy is not the key to fulfillment and happiness in life is because there was only one perfect man who ever lived who was the perfect, fulfilled, the, the, the model for all of us, and he never had a companion. His whole life was lived without that. 
And in spite of that, he was able to be all that God had called him to be. When we see intimacy as the key to happiness and fulfillment and purpose, what we're doing is we're making sex into an idol. It's becoming a thing that we're worshiping. We're wanting it to give us what God alone can give us. We're wanting it to give us purpose and meaning and fulfillment, to make it an end in itself. And what happens because of that is all of our desires and our lusts become turned in upon the self. And and intimacy becomes, instead of about what I can give to another, it becomes about what I can get. It becomes about my own selfish desires. Isn't this so true? That if if we see this relationship, if we see this event, this intimacy in our life, if we see it as the key to fulfillment, then I need you in my life, not for your sake, but for what you can do for me. Because there are deep, unfulfilled needs in my life, and I need you in my life so that I can be a whole person. And when that happens, uh, we enthrone our own lusts in an attempt to see them satisfied. This is such a broken way to live. It's as silly as allowing a three-year-old to run your household. The desires that we have, our hungers and our desires, are disordered because of sin. And if we allow what we want to control us, it will destroy us. This is what the scripture is speaking about in in James chapter 1 that we were studying this morning. James says, he says that, uh, it's actually further on in the book of James, I'm sorry. He says that you lust and you desire to have, that you could consume it on your lust. In other words, he's saying there are hungers that the more you try to fill them, the more empty you are. And when we set intimacy up on that kind of plane, above where God has ever told us to put it, to put it up in the place of God, when we allow it to be a God, what happens is that intimacy loses all meaning. In fact, it loses all joy. It becomes bondage instead of freedom. Relationships that have no boundaries... Um, lead to meaningless lives and meaningless relationships. And and this is for two reasons. They're meaningless because they're devalued. The relationship itself no longer matters. All that matters is what I get out of this relationship. All that matters is what you can give me. Um, I don't value my spouse. Their values only is only based on what I can get. And it's such a contrast from the scriptures that I've already read to you this morning where Adam, when he sees Eve, what he delights in is not that she's someone to meet his needs, it's who she is. It turns him out from himself and he says, this now, it's you that I wanted. Not what you could give me, but who you are as a person. It turns me out to meet your needs. And, and scripture, if we, if we followed Uh, the testimony of Scripture through, and we turn to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll see a beautiful um, unfolding of that and how that fits into God's purpose and plan. But I want to touch briefly on the second way that it becomes meaningless, not only because things are devalued, but it's meaningless because it's not connected to anything outside of ourselves. It's all about us. And Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 goes on to say, for this reason, in this relationship, a man leaves his father and mother, And he clings to his wife and the two become 
one flesh. The idea is something outside of myself that that begins to turn me out from myself and give meaning and value to my human relationships. And in all of this that that I've spoken about to you, there's so much... There's so much that's disordered in our culture that I feel like as I'm trying to present the message to you this morning that I'm trying to give you what would fill a book that's hundreds of pages long in just a few short minutes. But I'm going to try to do my best, and I want in this point just to touch on two things that the disordered sexuality of our culture destroys. All right? There are two things, and they are fashion and entertainment. Okay? And I don't say this because I want to bash on it. It's because this is the actual reason why. I don't want to stand up here and preach a message to you guys that's all about what you should and shouldn't be watching and what you should and shouldn't be wearing because that would get old very fast. So what I'm trying to do is put this particular point where it belongs in the context of God's plan for intimacy. Okay? So I'm trying to give it to you where... It fits. It's clear from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 and God's plan and provision when Adam and Eve sinned and fell and their desires become disordered that into that picture comes clothing. That's the reason why the clothes shows up. Before sin, before disordered desire, there was no need for it. There was perfect communion between these two people. There was no need to cover anything. Because there was no sin. There was no, uh, there was no um, out-of-control desires. And there was no unfulfilled desires. But God, in his grace, gives Adam and Eve a covering. He covers them with clothing. And throughout the scripture, over and over again, clothing represents a gift of grace. And, and there's a connection here. Before Adam and Eve sinned, they were sufficient in and of themselves. They, they didn't have any, they, they had their communion with God. But after their sin, they have a need, and that need requires something to die to cover them up. Did you, did you notice that's what happened? The scripture doesn't give us all the details, but it says what it says, and if you wanted to follow along, just make sure I'm following the scripture closely. In Genesis chapter 3, it says that when Adam and Eve fell, they're naked, they're ashamed, so they take fig leaves. Uh, they were probably kind of largish leaves, and they sew themselves loincloths, the bare minimum amount of coverage that they can possibly have. They cover up the most needful part of their bodies, the thing that they're most ashamed of, the thing that they feel the most desperate need to cover. And if that's where the story ended, we could see clothing as a bad thing. Adam and Eve are ashamed they cover themselves. But when God steps into the picture, what God does is God kills an animal and he takes its pelt and he makes them clothes. Do, do, you, do you follow what's happening here? They needed a covering. Something else had to provide that covering for them. And God kills an animal and provides a covering for them. And that, that covering, that clothing, becomes a picture of the righteousness of Christ that covers us. I don't know if you're making the connection that I made, but when I saw that, I thought that was so beautiful. It's noted by um, uh, a lady named Heather Theinemann in a, in a book called um, What's Up with the Fig Leaves? And she, she points out how these, this covering of, of 
animal pelts is a picture of the grace of God. And throughout Scripture, whenever nudity, nakedness, and the idea in Scripture is not that someone is completely unclothed, but they are wearing less than they ought. And whenever that happens, it's always something that should bring shame to them. So, in other words, the, in, in before, b- before the sin entered the picture, there was no shame and there was no need for covering. But afterwards, it was shameful to be uncovered. And so, therefore, in propri- the, the proper thing to do, we needed, we recognized the need for a covering. And the need for a covering was not because we're embarrassed of our bodies. It's because God intended that to be for one person and one person only. It has nothing to do with our bodies being embarrassing or feeling shame about them. It has, the shame is in, is in displaying what God has asked to be reserved for one person. Now, some of you, maybe still your brain is clicking and you're saying, well, Brother Martin, you're not connecting all the dots and I don't see why this is important. Still, there are two things, and I'm just going to very, very briefly, but vulgarity brings insecurity because what should be covered is exposed. Isaiah 47 verses 2 and 3 says this, take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. In this, it's a picture God speaking to Israel like they were his wife. And he says, before I cared for you, I did everything you needed. Now you're going to have to work for your own bread and you're going to be shamed by your uncovered body. And and in fact, uh, he says, your nakedness shall be uncovered. Your disgrace, or in the King James, your shame shall be seen. Do you see the connection? Disgrace or to be ungraced. And grace means that we cover. Just like we cover in, in uh, Noah's, the ending of Noah's story, Noah's covered by his sons, that grace covers what should be covered. And the, not only is there a loss of uh, of shame and the vulgarity brings brings uh, shamefulness upon us, but there's a loss of the sacred because what is supposed to be treasured is treated as unimportant. The very the three verses before what I read earlier, the verses you were a little embarrassed about from from Proverbs chapter five and verses six, uh, eighteen and nineteen. In verses five, uh, I'm sorry, verses fifteen through seventeen. This is what this is what the writer of Proverbs says. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad and streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. In the context in which this passage is is from, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 through 19, the context is the writer is saying there are things in a spousal relationship that are supposed to just be for the two of you. Not because you're embarrassed about them, but because you treasure them so much, they're just for you. There are times where a family will enjoy a special time together of playing games or whatever, and it's just your family, not because you're embarrassed or ashamed, but because it's your family. And there's a special sacredness that comes with this. But even more in that special relationship between a husband and wife, there are things that are just for the, for the two of you. I'm going to give you four principles, and these are from Heather Thineman's book. Modesty is a reminder of the provision of Christ's righteousness to meet our desperate need. Fundamental to true Christian modesty is the belief that our bodies are incredibly good, incredibly beautiful. 
A woman's body in particular is a garden of delights, and modesty is the fence. Charming as white pickets and daunting as barbed wire, protecting it from being treated as a public amusement park and preserving it as a private garden for her husband alone. Modesty is a bodyguard for sexual pleasure even more than it's a security guard against sexual perversion, keeping us enthralled with what we do have instead of lusting for what we don't have. And I'm sorry, I know some of this is a little plain, but I think we need God's word to speak to us in these matters. So I've touched on that, and I'm not going to go any further there, but I do want to touch on, on one last thing. I said fashion and entertainment. There is something wrong in our hearts if we can enjoy as entertainment what is offensive and hateful to God. This commandment speaks of the sacredness, thou shalt not commit adultery, the sacredness of marriage, of a relationship between a husband and wife. The entertainment industry is full, chock full of movies and TV shows and sitcoms that make fun of that relationship and the whole plot turns on watching it destroyed. If we're going on the subject of modesty and lust, there's programming that is, that is designed to bring up lust in our hearts, sex sells. And if we can sit and enjoy that with no sense of shame, there's something wrong in our souls. And if we feel that sense of shame and override it and continue to watch it, we'll eventually kill ourselves off. We'll kill that sense of shame. You cannot be a child of God and enjoy things that God hates and continue to be his child. I I don't know how to say it any clearer and plainer than that. And right now, I, I would say that most of you all that would be familiar with the entertainment industry at all, you watch shows or movies very much at all, most of you know who Kevin Spacey is, or you know who uh, Weinstein is. Those names, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Why are we surprised that entertainment executives are maintaining that kind of culture of sin and wickedness when the shows include that kind of content? If we truly care about sexual victims and abuse and the evil that's resulting from that, we will allow it to affect our entertainment choices. I don't know what you watch. I'm not up here to preach against a certain thing or whatever, but there's times where I'm praying for you all and I'm just like, oh God, I can say whatever I want to say up here in the pulpit, but unless it gets far enough down in your heart, where you begin to make some hard choices, where you get the remote and start turning some stuff off, you are going to fill your mind with trash. You're going to fill your life with filth. And what will happen is brokenness, and it will be your fault. And we can talk about those people out there that are pushing that kind of agenda. But the truth is, they push what we listen to, what we watch, what we read. And if you're watching it and complaining about it, you're part of the problem. We're created in God's image. And when you're watching things where people are disrobed and they're enjoying one another's bodies outside of the boundaries of marriage, you're watching sin and evil. And don't be shocked that there are even more heinous forms of sin and evil that are happening behind the scenes. Because the problem with with sin when it begins to be celebrated, 
when, when sin is suppressed, when those kind of things aren't brought out the open, it does not keep sin from happening. I'm aware of those stories of tragedy, of churches that are full of these kinds of sins, that of organizations and denominations that even experience these kind of sins. But what I want to tell you is, when those sins are paraded and applauded, it does not mean that there's no sin that hides. It means that the sins that hide will grow worse and worse and worse. And you know I'm right, and I know I'm right, and God's word tells us this is true. Men hate the light because their deeds are evil. So when they applaud evil, they find even greater evil to enjoy in private. That's always what happens. But what I'm appalled about, what I am fearful for, we could go down a list of shows, and there's times where I almost think, should I go to some Christian site that rates movies and just give you all a list of things you should not be watching? Because sometimes I want to just name names and call out things and say, listen, if you're watching shows like this, this is wicked. You cannot do that and continue to live and walk in fellowship with God. But I think all of you could fill in some blanks for me. And I pray that God smites your heart with conviction. I pray that when you leave here, you are broken. If you're part of this, if this is something that you're enjoying in your own life, I pray you see it in a new way. There was an illustration I have not used to this point, but I I believe I'll touch on it this morning. And I I want you to remember this. I hope it's seared into your conscience. This is a moment when I wish I had a screen up here that I could display the pictures that 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 were included along with this story. It was this story. Years ago, my mind goes back, I, I, I tried to figure out exactly how old I was. I think I was between five and seven years old, and I had a, a grandpa, my grandpa, loved National Geographics. And I remember flipping through the pages of a National Geographics, and I was young enough, I could read the story, enough to follow the story, but the main thing that captivated me were the photographs. And so there are details that are completely lost to my memory, and I have not taken the time to research this story on the National Geographic to find where it's at in their archives. But I assure you, that it's true. It did happen. I remember reading the story and the story centered around some children, some young children that found a very heavy disc of metal. Um, and it just, it showed up on their playground. If I recall the story correctly, they found this disc. And the unique thing about the disc, not only was it heavy, very, very heavy, but it also glowed in the dark. So they played with it into the, into the evening hours. And one of the children dropped that little disc into their pocket a disc of radioactive material. That's what it was. Um, I don't recall as, at that young age exactly how that disc had found its way to their playground, what had happened, what kind of accident. It I don't think it was something, maybe it was like a radium infused, not like uranium or plutonium, but something that was radioactive enough that it wasn't just dangerous. It was deadly. So that toy that they had played with, that they had played Frisbee with, that they had thrown back and forth, That toy was killing them. And the final photographs of the story, as this little photo essay played out, was of the one child at the doctor's, because when he he or she had taken that disc home with them in their pocket, it had burnt a hole into their leg, through the skin, down into the flesh. But that was far from the worst of their troubles. Because as they were playing with this deadly disc, and it was killing them, I think at least three of those children died. And the final picture was of those caskets and then of the vaults of thick, heavy concrete that the children had to be put in because the radioactivity was strong enough that it had to be sealed in even after death. 
And I believe that's just a picture of the deadliness and evil of sexual sin. You cannot be anywhere around it. You cannot enjoy it and it not affect you. And the less you notice it, the more deadly it is. That's what I'm trying to say. That The problem with this kind of entertainment, with this kind of thing, is that it, it, uh, it, inc- it uh, deadens us to its evil. It makes it normal. And then what happens is that we disregard God's law, and there are always consequences. And those consequences destroy everything that we love. The consequence for intimacy itself is that it becomes no longer a treasured thing between a man and a woman, but it becomes a thing to be tossed away because you never know when that person's going to end up with someone else. And one night stands and just all that goes along with that. It's not the way God made us to work. And there's always going to be costs. And when you remove all the boundaries and barriers, what you create is not the summer of free love like, we sang, like they sang about and celebrated in the 60s. What you create is the brokenness and devastation of intimacy that we experience today. You know why we're lonely? Because we don't know what to do with sexual intimacy. That's why we're lonely. What I'm saying is on a fundamental societal level, one of the reasons why we have an epidemic of loneliness is because none of us can open up to one another because we're so broken on such a deep level. Children are left. And, and I, I want to put in here, right here from the pulpit, I know that some of you have experienced failure in these areas, and this is not a sermon to tear at those wounds. I've experienced that in my own family. My sister has uh, was married for, I think, five years um, to a man, and that relationship ended. And so I've seen this firsthand. I know what this is like. And I'm not saying this is to tear at wounds, but just like as that family stood over those crypts of, that, of, of their children buried, can you imagine if they would have been upset at somebody warning about the dangers of radiation? Oh, no, no, I have children that died of that. I don't want you to talk about that. The exact opposite. They would want everybody to know, don't touch that. It's dangerous, it's deadly, it's destructive. Not only does it bring brokenness to our, ourselves, to our children, but our whole society unspools. Because we can no longer depend on anything. The family is the building block of societies and cultures. And when the family falls apart, everything else falls apart with it. The doctrine, the idea of free sex, instead of it leading to freedom, it leads to bondage and destruction. Uh, If you want to see that played out, Romans chapter 1 and verse 27. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion one for another shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error, destruction. Um, it's, it's amazing to me that we're determined to try, to try to ignore God's directives and then we're surprised at epidemic proportions of STDs. Um, we're shocked that, ha- that my heart breaks for people that are experiencing that. I'm not, I'm not saying this at all like shouting happiness. What I'm saying is that is judgment. That's what comes. When you break God's order, that's what happens. And we see both of these things put together in in 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verses 18 and 19. He speaks of bondage. Listen to what Peter says. Speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual, sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, 
To that, he is enslaved. In other words, there's a real danger of us growing enslaved to our passions, and that doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to bondage. And then earlier in 2 Peter 2.12, he says, These, like irrational animals, they're creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant. They will also be destroyed in their destruction. Part of the same context. Peter is referring to false teachers. that. So he's referring to those within the church that have sexual appetites that are out of control, and they're destroying them and others with them. So we need to look at the reason why God has created that intimate relationship and put such safeguards around it that one of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not commit adultery. Um, One of the sources that I read this week said this about it, and I think this is really good. I hope this sticks in your mind. said, sex is like superglue, and if you squeeze it out at the wrong time or in the wrong place, it always creates a mess. In other words, God didn't design us to just be with somebody for a week or two or three and create those intimate bonds and then rip it apart. And I think all of us realize that. All of us know that. That's not how life works. That's not how God designed us to be. God has intended this relationship to be for life. Now, we could talk about some of the circumstances and situations where it doesn't end up being for life. And that, that may be something that somebody, if somebody wanted to ask me about it later, you're welcome to. But the scripture gives boundaries and reasons and the, and the ways that that all plays out, that when someone has hard-heartedly disregarded the covenant of marriage, then the marriage has ended and it's destroyed that, that marital intimacy. But I want to give you a moment of hope here at the end. I want to just point you towards hope because in our world, sometimes we embrace a kind of culture purity that gives the idea to those of you that are listening that if you've messed up, well, you're not worth anything anymore because we derive our value from our purity in these areas And if you've ever blown it, and some of you, maybe even, have experienced a painful relationship because of feeling like you were unvalued because of previous mistakes, all right? So I want to give you some hope here at the end because that is not the vision that Scripture gives. Scripture does not root your value on your moral purity. Scripture roots your value in being in the image of God. And and the the New Testament is just full of beautiful examples, not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. I, I quoted the verse for you earlier where um, God gives a prophecy through the prophet Isaiah where he speaks of his disregard for Israel and Judah. And he says, um, I had comforted and cared for you, but now he says, strip yourself bare, take away your veil. I don't want you anymore. But that's not the end of the story. It's as if God has said to them, because they have been promiscuous with all these other lovers, They can't value him any longer, but he's not done with them. Listen to what he says in in Isaiah 62. He said, you will no more be termed forsaken. Your land will no more be called desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. Do you know that's God's words to those that are sexually broken? That he loves us in our brokenness. He rescues us in our sin. He says, your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. Do you know what that tells me? Is that God recognizes the brokenness and the results of our sin, and he values and loves us for who we are in spite of our sin. 
And he wants to wash us, to cleanse us, and to draw us into his family. Jesus with the woman uh, caught in adultery. Jesus stands and says to her in chapter 8 of of John and verses 10 and 11, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus brings cleansing and wholeness to our sexual brokenness. And one final passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous, that's what we're talking about earlier. Those that can sit and enjoy sexual sin being played out on the silver screen and feel no pang of conscience or feel that pang of conscience and ignore it and keep. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit? But here's what he said. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So I'll end with hope. Aren't you thankful that, that God does that for us? That he doesn't leave us broken by our sinfulness? That he set up boundaries knowing that I would say if every one of us, if our history were played out for everyone to see, the history of every thought, every word, every act, every promise made and unkept, every one of us would be embarrassed by our story. But Jesus changes stories. So my prayer this morning as you leave, I pray you leave soberly. I pray that from here forward, I hope that from now on, you view this kind of sexual perversion and sexual sin that is rampant in our culture. I pray you view it like you view radioactive material. That you avoid it like the plague. But I also pray that your life is filled with grace and you realize that you have grace for those in their brokenness. You don't look down with disdain and hate because you've dealt with your own past. You have the grace to love those even in their sin. Some of you interact, maybe even on a regular basis, with people who are in the grip of sexual sin. They're not people to disdain or look, up, look down on. They're no, we're no better than them, but for the grace of God. The grace of God that can transform and change us. And I, I, I never even got around to the core of one thing I wanted to touch on just, just very briefly is, what's the purpose of marriage? Why did God make it such a big deal? Well, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us Paul is giving his admonitions to, the, to husbands and wives. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he says, I show you a mystery. He says that um, the mystery is that Christ and the church, Paul says that a husband and wife, when they really love each other, and they have a relationship that, that, that fulfills the, the way God wants that relationship to look. He says that it looks just a little bit like Christ in the church. It's as if God is telling us here that he tried to design, didn't try, he designed the world so that there would be something we could look at. And when we look at it in reality, we would say, that's a little bit like how Jesus loves us. And he did that in marriage. He put it into the very, very fabric of the world. And I read just a, a really great little short story about, they were talking about um, 
I guess years ago, the way the story was told, that um, the Rolls-Royce automobile made in Britain was the official vehicle of ambassadors uh, at, in different foreign embassies around the world. And the budget office wanted those extremely expensive vehicles to be reserved for their biggest, best offices, maybe London, Paris, D.C. But um, the Foreign Affairs Office, they wanted one at all the embassies. And this is why. They said, what, what we want is, they said, we want when people see that car go flying by, that beautiful Rolls Royce maybe a, a big old silver phantom or something. We want it when it goes flying by. For them to say to themselves, you know, I've never been to England. I've never been to Britain. But any place that can make a car that beautiful must be a really beautiful place. And what God's intention for us in our relationships is as we play out within our own home, as we, as we live out the gospel story, other people look on and say, you know, I don't know God. I've never really known him. But anybody, any God that can make a relationship that beautiful must be a great God. That's, that's our intention. You know, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. And marriage shows us the shape of the gospel. That's a quote from, I don't remember who. But I'll just I'll I'll leave you with that. And I just I pray that that this message in all of its different points, I know it's big, it's it's wide, it's it's broad, but I pray that God uses it to touch your hearts and maybe to bring you to, to a deeper point of repentance and forgiveness in your own life. Maybe you've never experienced repentance and forgiveness. Maybe you have, but you realize that there's some areas that you you need to tell God you're sorry. And and that's what I pray you do. Uh, don't just sweep it under the rug. Treat it as, as serious as it truly is. And then walk in purity. When you've found that point where, where, where you've been truly forgiven and changed, walk in holiness day to day through the grace of God.